Pro Se, Law 360's weekly podcast. I am very much not Amber McKinney. I am uh, Bill Donahue. Amber is out this week on vacation. Uh, I am here with my intrepid co-host, as always, Alex Lawson. Hi, Bill. It's good to see you, buddy. It is indeed. Um, I had one item that I wanted to talk about yesterday, Wednesday, the 30th of September, was mm-hmm. International Podcast Day. Did you see that? No, I didn't get the uh, I didn't get the alert. Now i I normally don't really like these sort of cutesy internet holidays that are clearly invented for clout, and mm-hmm. uh, but I do want to say that I also don't like it in this instance. So uh, we're podcasters; we don't need to be valorized. We don't we don't need a day. I'm not speaking for all podcasters. I'm speaking only for myself. Uh, do you have any strong feelings on this? No, I mean, I share your sentiment that I feel like there th- these things have been completely blown out of proportion. There's like natural, like national petroleum industry day. Like it, it just, it's, we, we've, we've, we've bastardized the idea of a holiday at this point. For but, all, uh, for all our kings out there in the extractive fuels industry, uh, <laughs> this one's for you. Uh, but yes, uh, we have an interesting show uh, today. We had a very uh, good conversation with our colleague Jack Carp who wrote Pretty a great jarring story. conversation frankly yeah 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 it was uh, yeah i don't mean to uh, take too much joy in it uh, it was he wrote an interesting story about these court ordered drug rehabilitation programs that there's been a bunch of lawsuits filed that say they're they're, offen- they're they are effectively functioning like labor camps uh, with people being directed there and not being co- and being sort of farmed out for for for-profit companies and not being compensated he wrote a really interesting story, and we had a really good talk with him about it, so stay tuned for that. Yeah, you never want to be having a segment where you're talking about potential 13th Amendment violations uh, here in 2020. But um, we did, though. We're, we're, we're going places where the other podcasts don't want to. After but uh, but before then, uh, we're going to talk yes. about some of the big news of the week, and uh, I think we're going to lead off with TikTok, which we talked about a few weeks ago. Alex has an update for us. Yeah, some interesting news in the Trump v. TikTok saga as that as that globe spins. Uh, we had a federal court ruling this week that stepped in and stopped the Trump administration from basically banning TikTok from U.S. app stores. Uh, so that that ruling was handed down on Sunday night, and later the judge even went so far to say that the Trump administration may have and even likely has violated U.S. sanction laws by uh, handing down this like bevy of TikTok restrictions. So it was a very interesting uh, uh, decision there. Teens everywhere are just thrilled. Oh, it was a huge, it was a huge Celebratory day. vapes everywhere. Yes, I was babysitting the docket all Sunday and it erupted in, a, in just a <laughs> sea of memes and like you say, vape smoke. So yeah, that was uh, good. Remind me what the basic outlines of, of this ban on TikTok and, and the lawsuit. Yeah. So the Trump administration has deemed TikTok to be a national security threat, which still sounds kind of funny to say out loud. Um, <laughs> not that it's, it's certainly entirely a threat without of some merit, kind, but I don't know if it's national security. Yeah. I mean, so the, the basic argument goes that because it's owned by this Chinese company and there are questions about the, you know, its ties to the Chinese government that... Mm-hmm. The the company basically poses security risks because of the the data security of of its users, or or what they would say is the lack of data security. So to address these risks or these 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 security threats, the White House issued a number of restrictions on TikTok that most people describe as an effective ban on the app. There's a bunch of them. Most of them are phased in to come in to, to come into effect 
later this year. But the first one was the App Store ban, which would have obviously prevented new people from downloading the app right. and prevented existing u- users from getting updates. And that was set to take effect uh, on Sunday, this past Sunday night at, at midnight. So TikTok sued, and the first order of business was for them to get an injunction on this App Store ban. And like I say, they were able to get it. A D.C. judge kind of slammed the brakes on that ban just hours before it was set to take effect on Sunday night. I know we've talked a bunch over the years uh, about the the sort of hands-off role the courts tend to take when the executive branch does things in the name of national security. So yeah. Why is this different than that? Isn't it? It's pretty rare for a court to to jump in and say no. The White House can't do something like this. Yeah, it, it's it's very rare, and the TikTok suit covers a lot of ground. They are, they they make constitutional claims. They make sort of general administrative law claims, but the portion that the judge really focused on in this uh, to deny or, or rather or rather to grant this injunction. Um, was that the administration had likely violated the very sanctions law that it used to impose these restrictions. And that law, um, we won't, I promise I won't get too professorial about international sanctions law, but it is called the International Emergency Economic Powers Act. It's known as IEPA. This basically forms the basis of all modern sanctions. And it gives the president a tremendous amount of power to restrict trade in the name of national security, which makes a certain amount of sense when you look at it from a policymaking standpoint. If you deem that, you know, a country is harboring terrorists, you know, the the administration is allowed to restrict commerce with that country or sure. with certain companies within that country. Um, however, it was amended uh, sometime in the 1990s with a specific exemption uh, within this broad remit of this law. And it basically says that the president cannot use IEPA to restrict, quote, personal communication or, quote, informational materials. Mm-hmm. So this is a big deal because at the most most academics that you talk to about this say that at the time that this law was passed or this exemption was written into the law, it was meant to cover things like letters, like personal correspondence mm-hmm. or educational texts like books and films and things like that. So the idea is like, you know, we have sanctions out the wazoo on Iran, but you're still if you have family in Iran, you can send them a letter. That's still allowed. Right. But it takes on a pretty interesting, you know, there are some interesting wrinkles when you try and apply this law to a social media app where its entire business model is, you know, personal communication or the transmission of materials, right? And the judge basically says that the videos that you make on TikTok are at least... Now, this is not a ruling on the merits, and it's it's an injunction ruling. Sure, all the caveats apply. He said it's likely... That TikTok is going to be able to prove that, you know, when you get on TikTok and you're lip syncing to Cardi B and you're like, that is an educational text right there. Well, or it's at least personal communications, right? I mean, it's like when you say, I want you to park this Big Mac truck right in this little garage, that is now covered by that that is that that is a federally protected act, possibly in the eyes of this judge that is beyond the reach uh, of sanctions law, which is pretty interesting uh, when you really think about it. But so how does this interface with the with all the stuff with because I, I know that a deal was eventually reached with where TikTok was going to be sort of chopped up and part of it was going to be they were going to have they were going to uh, be sold to Oracle and Walmart was involved. How does this sort of cross with that? 
Yeah, and that's important. This is not like a lot of things that are playing out in the Trump administration. This is not normal sanctions litigation. Because, and for for a fuller discussion of this, I would refer back a couple episodes ago. We talked to our colleague Ben Horney about this. We went on the, the sort of double track that the administration is going on to try and rein in TikTok. Um, but yeah, uh, since since we recorded that, even TikTok, as you say, has agreed to a. They're not quite being sold, but it's like a partnership with Oracle and also Walmart that's basically intended to mitigate the government's security concerns. Right. The idea being, if you're owned by these wholesome U.S. companies, that's fine for us sure. uh, regarding what, regarding whatever you're going to do with the user's data. Sure. I, I trust Walmart implicitly. <laughs> I, I leave my kids at Walmart. It's yeah. fine. <laughs> It's true. Uh, so if any restrictions are eventually imposed against TikTok, they are likely to be short-lived if there's no last-minute snags with this deal. So again, and, and, and that would ostensibly obviate this lawsuit. But the judge's ruling is still really uh, is still a pretty big deal when you consider that data security concerns posed by social media networks are not going anywhere anytime soon. And it's definitely possible that some degree of foreign ownership of a social media, you know, website is going to draw the eye of, you know, either this administration or some future administration. And now we have, again, at least a preliminary ruling that says there are certain things that you're not going to be able to use sanctions law to address. And uh, that's going to be something that's going to keep the sanctions bar and the telecom bar uh, certainly uh, interested as we go ahead. For our second story this week, we're going to pivot to a darker story, one of the darker COVID stories that we've covered uh, since the pandemic began about six months ago. Uh, We're talking about criminal charges over a a very deadly outbreak uh, that took place during the early days of the pandemic. Specifically, uh, authorities in Massachusetts last week indicted two officials at a veterans home um, in in Massachusetts where 76 residents died of coronavirus. Um, these are uh, these are significant because it's the first ever criminal charges filed over uh, what is a huge number of, of deaths that have taken place at nursing homes, long-term care facilities, and similar places that were chock full of very, very vulnerable people. The coronavirus litigation is obviously going to play out across in numerous different forms for years, decades to come, probably. Um, but like you say, a very interesting um, uh, set of criminal charges we're dealing with here. And obviously, the fact that it took place at this, it's, this is a veteran's home, but obviously, facilities like this and like nursing homes were really ground zero in the, they, in, uh, in those, you know, the, the early weeks and months of the right. pandemic. And it's still not you know, fully in the clear, depending on what state you're in. But uh, orient us with the basics here. What's uh, uh, what what led us to where we are here? So these charges were brought last Friday by Massachusetts uh, State Attorney General Maura Healy. Um, uh, she indicted two former officials at the Soldiers Home in Holyoke, Massachusetts. It's a, a state run at about 250 bed uh, long term nursing care facility for military veterans in um, in Central Mass. It's about 45 minutes north of uh, north of Hartford. Um, uh, the guys involved, a guy named Bennett Walsh, who was 50, he was the superintendent of the facility, and uh, Dr. David Clinton, who was 71, he's the, the home's uh, former medical director. They're each facing 10 counts total, five counts of uh, criminal neglect and five counts of serious, serious bodily injury. Um, the quote from Healy when she was announcing the charges is, quote, 
They risked their lives from the beaches of Normandy to some of the jungles of Vietnam, and to know that they died under the most horrific circumstances is truly shocking. It's already a it's already a pretty affecting story when you read about what's what's happened at this facility. Um, but I we we should talk a little bit more about the actual sort of the circumstances that gave rise to sort of criminal warrants being issued, warrants being issued, and then charges being brought. Right. When do you jump from you know say a civil class action yeah. to criminal charges? Right. Mm-hmm. So the the charges here center on a decision that these two guys made in. Uh, late March, I believe March 27th, to consolidate residents uh, of two dementia units at the home into a single unit. Uh, The key here is that the state says that Walsh and Clinton, these two defendants, placed veterans who were showing symptoms of COVID with other people who were not showing symptoms. You know, they took people who were potentially... Uh, positive for the virus and place them with people who they had good reason to believe were not. Um, They thus, according to the state, increased the risk of transmission between everyone in the home. Yeah. Uh, They also, according to the indictment, put vets in very cramped conditions when they were doing this. Um, uh, the, the, The positive folks were put six people to a room that normally held four. Uh, They put a bunch of the asymptomatic people crammed into a dining room uh, all these people were uh, allegedly allowed to intermingle with each other. Um, so just a lot of little decisions, little sort of choices in the way that they did this that the state says amount to a, a criminal level of of neglect for the people that they were charged with taking care of who were, as we mentioned earlier, very, very high risk for COVID. Yeah. And, and, and by, by March 27th, people were should have been aware to a certain extent. Uh, the quote from Healy on on the specific charges, quote, we allege that the actions of these defendants during the COVID-19 outbreak at the facility put veterans at higher risk of infection and death and warrant criminal charges. What's the upshot here? Like this is what is believed to be our first batch of criminal charges. And obviously this specific circumstance perhaps may be pretty egregious, but there were stories like this that were popping up all around as the pandemic took hold what are what's what what's the sense about what this could mean uh, for covid litigation going forward well for these two defendants i mean they're facing years yeah. in prison there were uh, for some of the charges it was 3 years per count for some of the charges it was 5 years per count so you know they're both older gentlemen they're they're facing very serious uh criminal charges here mm-hmm. healy uh the massachusetts state ag also said that she's investigating a number of other nursing homes and similar facilities across Massachusetts. So uh, other places in Massachusetts could be uh, in the very near term facing uh, similar criminal charges. But I think it's 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 important to talk about this more broadly uh, because the I think these criminal charges could be the first of many uh, around the country. Um, you look at just just if you look at the numbers yeah. here when it comes to this fact pattern, it's almost certainly not alone. Mm-hmm. Um, according to the New York Times, roughly 40 percent of all coronavirus deaths in the U.S. have been uh, either staff or residents of nursing homes and other long care facilities, something like 68,000 people. And that was a few weeks ago that that yeah. stat was cited. Um, and, and according to a report in May by ProPublica, the investigative journalism outlet, uh, when the pandemic broke out, something like 43% of these kind yeah. of nursing homes and long care facilities 
around the country hadn't complied with a federal mandate that was created to um, th- th- that required such facilities to implement a plan to deal with emergencies, one of which was an outbreak of a new uh, pandemic dangerous viral disease. Mm-hmm. So uh, you just have a, a series of factors where uh, this has been an epicenter of the of, yeah. of the, these outbreaks. And we've already seen civil cases that have been filed against these places, against the businesses that are running them. Many of them are for-profit businesses. And uh, now we're seeing criminal charges. I would be I would be shocked if we do not see a lot more of both in the months and the years ahead. In recent years, state courts across the country have opted to send those accused of nonviolent drug offenses to rehabilitation programs rather than serve time in prison. But a trickling of new lawsuits has revealed explosive allegations that some of those programs are functioning more like labor camps, forcing residents to do grueling work for for-profit companies and pocketing the wages, all under the threat of being sent to prison if they don't complete their work. Here to walk us through it is Law 360's Jack Carp, who wrote a really interesting story for us about these programs and the mounting legal challenges against them. Welcome back to the show, Jack. Thanks. Good to be here. Good to have you back. We will talk about some of the individual lawsuits, which is why you started writing about this in the first place. We'll talk about those in a little bit. But generally, what is the deal with these rehab programs? Because it was pretty eyebrow raising when I when I read your story. Just give us kind of the give us the the lowdown here. Well, sure. Um, like you said, you know, um, over the last few years, an increasing number of drug courts are diverting, you know, nonviolent offenders or offenders accused of drug crimes into treatment rather than prison, which is generally a good thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but a, it is coming out now that a, a small number, I want to emphasize that this is sure, not all yeah. treatment centers, but there is a number of treatment centers and they are largely, not exclusively, but largely concentrated in Southern states like Arkansas, Oklahoma, Louisiana, Texas, that some of these centers are, rather than providing actual treatment, what they are doing is farming their residents out to private for-profit companies and making those residents work for no pay. Or in other words, the companies are actually paying the centers the Mm -hmm. residents' wages instead of paying the actual workers, and the centers are keeping those wages. And what's uh, what's kind of um, more (laughs) eyebrow-raising, if you want to say, is that uh, the residents themselves and their lawyers who are involved in these cases are saying that not only are they being forced to work without pay, but a large number of them are being seriously injured on these jobs and they are not receiving adequate medical care and they're being forced to continue working under threat of incarceration, even though they are injured and and, uh, shouldn't really be working anymore. Well, you mentioned some of these sort of horrific injuries that uh, folks who are involved in these programs are dealing with. And, um, you know, could you walk us through your story had some some obviously very eye opening anecdotes and stories from from some of these individual cases. Could you walk us through maybe one or two of them? Sure. Um, well, one of the worst cases, at least that you know, I came across is, is one that's highlighted in the story. It's uh, this gentleman, uh, his name is Brad McGahey, um, and he uh, was uh, arrested for violating the terms of his probation for receiving stolen property. And instead of being sent to prison, um, he was sent to a facility called Christian Alcoholics and Addicts in Recovery or CARE, and they're based in Jay, Oklahoma. Um, 
And while he was at this facility, he was made to work in a chicken processing plant for a company called Simmons Foods, um, doing things like suctioning guts out of slaughtered chickens, arranging chicken carcasses on a moving conveyor belt. Um, he wasn't paid for any of this labor. Um, and then one day he got his hand stuck in the conveyor belt. Um, it, it, it pulled his hand into the machine, breaking several bones, nearly severing a tendon in his wrist. And according to his complaint in the case, when he was able to uh, retrieve his hand from the machine, <laughs> it was bent completely backwards. Um, that's one of the worst ones yeah. I've heard, but other residents um, at, at that center and others have reported, you know, having a metal door crash down on their head, damaging their spine, being burned by molten plastic at a plastics manufacturer, being exposed to dangerous chemicals, you know, breaking wrists, things like that. Um, and they, a lot of them claim that they did not receive adequate medical care when this happened to them. One of them actually claimed that one of the facilities filed for workers' compensation on his behalf and then kept the money yeah, and didn't yeah. pass it along to him. Um, and they all say that despite being seriously injured, they were made to continue working under threat of incarceration if they didn't. And these injuries would be horrific in in any context for any worker, but sure. the, you know they are made more so perhaps by the idea that this was supposed to be an alternative to prison. This is supposed to be something that that is a perhaps lesser or more rehabilitative uh, sort of sort of uh, thing for a court to offer, and in fact they're being forced to to put themselves into these very dangerous situations. Absolutely, and you know what the what the centers what some of them have argued actually in these cases, is that the work that they're being made to do isn't work, it's treatment. You know, that's part of the treatment that what a lot of these people need is to be taught work ethic, discipline, dependability, and that that's why work is a big part of the treatment. Um, yeah. But, you know, the residents themselves and their attorneys say that they're actually getting very little in the way of treatment, that most of the treatment involves, you know, an occasional kind of 12-step meeting that's run by the residents themselves that very few of these centers have actually have licensed counselors mm -hmm. on staff. A lot of them aren't licensed by the state to provide addiction treatment. Um, yeah. And that's actually uh, something that I, you know, I think I, uh, that they, the centers emphasize and I think is important to emphasize is one of the kind of gray areas this falls into is that a lot of these states have regulations around what addiction treatment and rehabilitation centers are, what kind of treatment they offer, how you know residents yeah. are treated. And these specific centers, you know, CARE is one of the ones I mentioned. Um, another one is Drug and Alcohol Recovery Program, known as DARP. Um, they claim that they are not treatment centers. They claim that they are recovery centers. And what is the dis they, what is the distinction, and why is that? Like, because I wanted to talk about the about the suits a little bit. Because the, right, the reason absolutely. that we're talking about this is because all this all these lawsuits have been filed, and absolutely. the way that you're the way that you're describing it is sort of, it sounds sort of generally unseemly. But like, what yes. what shape are these are these challenges taking? Well, so to, to get to the lawsuits, so uh, a lot of former residents, basically, of some of these centers, and there's at least I think four or five suits that I found kind of you know moving their way through the courts throughout the country right now, and they're all kind of like large class actions. Um, the residents, you know, claim that they are mm -hmm. not being well, the, the main claims are wage and 
overtime yeah. claims. They're claiming that we're doing work not, and we're not being compensated. Right, exactly. We're doing yeah. work and we're not being compensated. And the centers themselves and the private companies that they that they contract to make the claim that these are not employees, that these mm-hmm. are patients, that they mm-hmm. are working in exchange for this treatment. So that's kind mm-hmm. of the central claim. Um, yeah. And then there are also um, other claims that have to do with um, things like involuntary servitude and violations of the 13th Amendment. Human that old pesky 13th Amendment. Exactly. Yes. And I will say that most of these suits um, seems like when they were first filed, they included those claims. And a lot of them over the course of the litigation, those claims have dropped away. And, and the lawyers I spoke with for the plaintiffs decided to focus on the wage and hour claims because they thought it would be easier to prove. There is one suit in particular, though, the lawyer um, I spoke with for the plaintiffs in that case was very adamant that he thought that the human trafficking claims needed to stay because what these um, facilities are doing isn't really described by just wage and hour claims. Like what they're really doing is human trafficking. And so Mm. it's important to to basically bring that claim. but yeah, but the centers are basically claiming that um, these aren't employees, yeah. um, that they're not you know, because of that. They do not fall under the Fair Labor Standards Act, um, that they are providing treatment. The treatment is the work um, and that they they are recovery centers, not rehabilitation or treatment centers, which means in a lot of these states, they don't have to be licensed. They don't have to have licensed counselors on staff. Um, you know, you said you asked me what the difference is between yeah, a recovery yeah, center and rehabilitation center. Yeah. And my honest answer is. I have no idea. I think it is a semantic <laughs> distinction that sure. they are making, you know, to justify their legal position. But that's my opinion. Yeah. Um, but the I guess the legal distinction would be that the regulations in a lot of these states cover rehabilitation mm. centers, treatment centers. They don't cover something called recovery centers. Yeah. Uh, one of the really like jarring things that stood out to me when I was reading the story was that, you know, it's not even like we're disputing facts here about whether or not they're being paid. Um, you know, I mean, the, the, the programs themselves say like, no, we're not providing wages. Like we keep the wages and that a lot of this just seems so ingrained in the system. You wrote about how even at least some of the attorneys told you that even some of the judges who like send the people to these programs say like, yeah, you know, they're going to, they're going to work you hard. Uh, but you know, it'll do you some good. What is that all about? I mean, what I can imagine the people you spoke to about this were, were fairly frustrated. Yeah, well, definitely the the lawyers on the plaintiff side of the case are sure. fairly frustrated. Um, yeah, I mean, I spoke to an attorney for DARP, you know, one of these centers, and he told me that, you know, he deposed several drug court judges in the course of this case. And they were actually, you know, very positive about DARP. They thought it was a good program. They thought it was helpful to people who, you know, were in their drug courts. They wanted to see it continue. Um, and they also said one of the, one of the, um, points that he made that the judges made or one of the judges made was that these are people who are at the end of their line, you know, like they have tried everything. It's either this or prison. And so this is a better alternative to prison. Um, But it is clear that, you know, the judges know what these centers are. You know, I've looked at the transcripts of some of these sentencing hearings Mm -hmm. and they said, like you said, like they're going to work you hard. I think that, you know, and it's impossible to get in the minds of these, you know, judges, obviously, you know, their claim is that they they think that these are useful, helpful programs for certain people. I think one thing that's really interesting about this, though, is that like a lot of things in our criminal justice system, it kind of comes down to money. Um, If you are a judge or a court sending a defendant to a what we would consider a more 
traditional rehabilitation center, think something like, you know, the obvious Betty Ford Clinic, those cost sure. a lot of money. And yeah. if a low income defendant is not going to be able to pay for that, guess who is? It's going to be the court. Mm-hmm. Uh, programs like the ones in the story, Dark Care, another program called Senecor in Texas, they are free. They don't charge their residents any money because their business model is not you pay <laughs> yeah, us. I can for guess treatment. why. I can see right. why. Yeah, they're, <laughs> depending they're on business... how if, if if what you've said is true or, or right. if, what, if what they're alleging is true. Yes. Yeah, their business model is we don't get money from our our patients. We get money from the private companies we're contracting our patients right. out to to work. So they so they're free, and I can see how that is a huge, um, very attractive benefit to counties, to drug courts, to judges when looking for places to send people Mm, to. Definitely. So let's talk a little bit more about these lawsuits. I know that, uh, you know, a lot of them are pending, but we've gotten at least one ruling uh, in these cases. Absolutely. So there's the lawsuit that has at least made it the furthest through the courts is the lawsuit against DARP, uh, Drug and Alcohol Recovery Program. And so I District court judge uh, made a ruling in that case, and I I believe if I remember correctly, it was September 2019. Um, And he basically ordered DARP and Hendron Plastics, which was the plastics company that DARP primarily contracted with, to pay the former residents um, over $1 million in, you know, back wages, damages, you know, plus attorney fees and and costs and all that and stuff. And what he said in his ruling was that these, you know, DARP, places like DARP were not operating as charities. They are businesses that manipulated the labor market and skirted compliance with labor laws for their own private ends. That's his quote. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so, you know, that was a, the only ruling we've gotten so far in any of these cases. Um, it is on appeal to the Eighth Circuit. Um, yeah. And I've spoken to the lawyers on both sides of that case. And of course, both sets of lawyers think they're right and will win at the Eighth Circuit. <laughs> no way. Sure. Lawyers? Yeah. No, of course not. Get, get out of here, Carp. What are you doing? Right. But it'll be interesting, like, it'll be interesting to see whatever happens in the Eighth Circuit, how that affects the other cases that are moving through the courts, because the claims in a lot of these cases are very similar. And a lot of them do come down to are these people employees or not employees? Um, And one thing I did want to point out um, that is really interesting (laughs) um, in terms of the claims in these cases is, you know, we all know the 13th Amendment, the pesky 13th Amendment, as you you said, Alex, Um, (laughs) I was kidding. Which, I hope that's freaking right. clear. Yes, yes. Exactly. yes. Thank you. That, thank you, Carp. <laughs> right. What well, the Thirteenth Amendment, you know, outlaws essentially, you know, slavery. It outlaws forced labor, except as punishment. Yeah. Um, for people who have committed crimes, and so a lot. One of the central arguments in a lot of these cases is whether or not these individuals count as prisoners. If they right. count as prisoners, yeah. they can be made to work. If they don't, they can't. And the judge in this ruling in October basically said that you can call them prisoners if you want, but they're not prisoners. They don't meet that definition. And so right. they are covered by the 13th Amendment. It gets into that whole sticky distinction that we were talking about before, that this is supposed to be an alternative. This is supposed right. to be different from right. prison. Yeah. And the, speaking of, you know, it's supposed to be an alternative and it's supposed to be helpful. One of the most heartbreaking um, elements of this story actually is so that gentleman I mentioned, Brad McGahey, um, you know, at the top, who went to um, this facility care to, you know, get treatment for addiction because of the injury he suffered. He is now addicted to pain medication, according oh, to the gosh. complaint. So, I mean, that's it's just it's just heartbreaking that, you know, 
people, some people are being sent to these facilities to get treatment and they're actually some of them coming out kind of worse off than when they went in. It's a harrowing story. I encourage everyone to read it. Uh, thanks so much for coming on the show, Jack. It was really, uh, uh, really good to talk to you again. Thank you. It's good to talk to you guys. Thanks, thanks. Jack. Well, we made it through another bro say without burning the place down. Sure. Uh, so, so that's good, which is especially good this time because we're in our own houses. Uh, but but. <laughs> I want to. So Jimmy Hoover, intrepid Supreme Court reporter, co-host of the term, was talking with one of our other D.C. reporters, Andrew Craigie, on Twitter yesterday. And they resurfaced this item about how when new justices are seated, they get put on this committee that oversees the administration of the Supreme Court cafeteria, mm-hmm. which is where employees of the court and, tour- and, and tourists can eat. And this is like, this was last written up when Gorsuch got put on the court. And it's like, I guess it's as close as they get to hazing because no one really likes doing it. <laughs> but as these guys were talking about it, one of them put up a link to the Yelp page for the Supreme Court cafeteria. And reading, reading like, tortured Yelp reviews is one of my very favorite pastimes. And sure. I wanted to do that here. I wanted sure. to go through some of the Supreme Court uh, uh, cafeteria reviews. You're, are, now, are you to into be that? Clear, to be clear, we did, you know, just to, a little bit of how the sausage gets made, we did discuss whether or not we should just sit here and read Yelp reviews for the Supreme Court restaurant. Um, uh, but I, but I will be, I will be clear about this. I did not go and read any of these beforehand. So we're coming in cold. We're coming in fresh. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I did read them. First of all, there aren't that many, which helped because there's only five of these. I was like, Oh, how are we going to go through these? There's Mm. five of these and it's been open for at least a couple years. So, um, there are lots of different phylum of, Yelp reviews, which are like the totally unhinged ones, which are like obviously entertaining in their own right. But what I really like are the ones where the thoughts are fairly lucid, but are so banal as to like make you like rub the sides of your temple and wonder what like I want to enter into the mind of people who are like, yes, the world must know about this take. Here's an example. Here's just here's an example. Three star review from John C. In uh, he's from Orlando, according to his Yelp. <laughs> sure, three stars. We stopped in for lunch after our lecture and after touring the Supreme Court. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> my wife and our daughter opted for the fried chicken, one with waffles, the other with green beans. Entrees are priced at a bargain of five to six dollars. I just had a couple of slices of toast and some chicken soup as I wasn't feeling well. His capitalizations <laughs> here. Now it's a, it's an audio <laughs> medium, but I mean, just truly mind-melting approach to capitalizing. Like, he, Unfor- it's, it's... Yeah. And, and we've learned halfway through the review that he wasn't feeling well. Why right. this is in a review of the Supreme Court cafeteria is beyond me, but anyway. Unfortunately, the soup was quite salty, but it did perk me up. This is roller coaster writing right here. <laughs> bottled and fountain beverages of all sorts are available, bottled at 2 to $3, better than any of the tourist attractions. The buffet line is a bit cramped, 
But the dining hall is spacious and comfortable. Trash and tray return are right near the exit. Good job! Exclamation point. I feel like if I've learned anything in life, it's that you probably just don't want to eat at a buffet at a at, at the Supreme Court I, <laughs> at a at a at a government facility. Is that what right. you're saying? <laughs> right, right, right. Uh, anything stand out to you? <sighs> well, I mean, I just think I, I there is one here that has what appears to be pieces of half-eaten bread and uh <laughs> and empty mustard packets with a picture of of all the justices yeah there's only um, three pictures two of which are the same picture that picture you just described i do love someone uh uh lucy w of new york oh, yes. New York, uh who you know she's she's an experienced yelper and uh she left what can only be described as a bench slap uh from march <laughs> of 2018 yeah be prepared to wait. The employees working in the building will cut you in line. Oh, this is I'm awesome. not sure if this is a privilege they're supposed to have, but it's a little frustrating when eight to ten of them cut in front of you while you're waiting to order. I ended up waiting 15 minutes, exclamation point. Also, there was only one person at the grill station at the peak of lunchtime when the second <laughs> worker decided to take a lunch break, dot, dot, dot. The food is mediocre, probably less than mediocre. Well, which is it, Lucy? I mean, come on. Think of the lunch food you had back in elementary school. Edible? Yes. Enjoyable and worth the price? No. I highly recommend skipping eating at the Supreme Court (laughs) and spending your money elsewhere for lunch. A couple of these, a couple of these, you like it reminded me of that scene in Walk Hard when he's with the Beatles and the Maharishi says, Beatles, stop fighting in India. Like the formality with which she's like, if you're thinking skipping eating at the Supreme Court, I'm here at the Supreme Court <laughs> cafeteria. Um, uh, one, w- one person began a, a two star review with, <laughs> I won't read the whole thing because it's a little bit long, but this is, this is kind of a banger of a lead, if I'm being honest. Here at the epicenter of government, there aren't many options to sit down and grab a bite to eat. <laughs> Here Amazing. At, here at the heart of justice. Yeah. You, um, so most of these are bad. Um, on aggregate, it has, what is the, it's two and a half on aggregate. But again, only five reviews. So if, you, if, you, if you've been there and you liked it and you feel compelled to do so, maybe, maybe perk them up if they want. We will go out on a high note here, though. I want to read a four-star review that, like most Yelp reviews, nevertheless has a little bit of a caveat in it from uh, a man named, or I, I, excuse me, I don't know if it's a man, it's a person named Binks J. I was hoping Santa you Anna. would get to, I was hoping you would get to <laughs> Binks's review because yeah. it really, it, it, it pops and it's written it in really a staccato does. that appears to be like you're sending a, a Western Union telegraph in an old film. That's true. Um, okay, so this is four stars from Binks J at, uh, from April of 2017. Burgers, sandwiches, and salad. That's a that's a that's a sentence. Period. Uh, start. Period. Not huge, but big on service and freshness. Excellent sandwiches with the most amazing roast beef I have seen in a long time. Son happy with burger from the grill. And did I mention the service? All the staff there was so friendly and helpful. <laughs> Great stop after you trek through the museum. Although have heard the cafe at Library of Congress even more amazing. A end teaser. Of rev- end of a, review. A teaser. He ends you on a cliff note or on yeah. a, on a, on a, on a <laughs> cliffhanger. A cliffhanger. Yeah. Um. Uh. We didn't get to. We we went. We were at this the Library of Congress last year for the Burtons, and we didn't. We, uh, were, we didn't go to the cafe. Uh, it's it's cavernous, but uh, we didn't make it to the cafeteria. We did yeah, get we'll lost several that. times, we'll but. Uh, 
Yeah, if we're ever allowed back, we should uh, we should check it out, see how it's uh, okay. Well, well, th- this was fun. I mean, we we did make it through a show without doing uh, anything stupid until now, and then yeah, uh, I, I mean, we made content for, out of Yelp reviews. They're, I'm excited they're, for they're, Amber to listen to the show and hear us just reading Yelp reviews. Yes, Amber, there are worse things we could have done, uh, but yes, uh, I think that's a good place to leave it. Uh, really enjoyed the show. Thanks for being with me, Bill. It was great. I will see you and the listeners next week. As always, we like to thank our hardworking producers, Kelly Marcano and Steven Trader, as well as our graphic designer, Chris Yates. Uh, a big shout out to our guest, Jack Carp, this week, as well as our other contributing reporters, Alyssa Aquino and Brian Dowling. Uh, music, as always, for the show comes from Silent Partner and Kelly Marcano. And we would like to remind you, if you like Pro Se, please leave us a written review on your favorite podcast platform. It's a big help. It helps other people find the show. Uh, Go on there, leave us a five-star review, write something nice. It makes us feel good, and it helps other people find the show. If you want to read more about anything we talked about, Jack's great story, any of the other stories we hit on, uh, head on over to our website, law360.com slash podcast. Again, that is law360.com slash podcast. Thanks, and we'll see you again next week.